0: Dungeons and Gatherers Melee!
1: Choose your character. Josh Carum. Aaron Thompson. A new challenger approaches. Eli Lyle. Ready?
0: Podcast! Everybody, And thank you for tuning into the Dungeons & Gatherers podcast, where not only two nerds, but three nerds today talk about Dungeons & Dragons, Magic the Gathering, and other fantasy-related things. We want to welcome our special guest on, Eli. How's it going, guys?
2: Glad to be here.
0: <laughs> we're glad to have you on, because we needed, we needed some insight for today. We needed some help, because we're going to talk about a Dungeons and Dragons-related topic today. We're talking about modules, and we're talking about homebrew and we're talking about both of them compared to each other. All
1: right, so admittedly, I don't do a lot of modules. Um, Out of the Abyss is the first module I've ever played. Yeah, I mostly have only done homebrew, so I'm super excited, Eli, to get some of your opinion, because you strike me as someone who has played many, many modules.
2: I have, for uh, the majority of my time in 5e, played with modules, but when I was playing uh, Dungeons & Dragons 3.5 when I was a kid, I actually didn't know that modules existed, and uh, Seth, my brother, and I only played uh, homebrew. He ran a homebrew campaign, and one of his friends, Cody, also ran a homebrew campaign. So when I was younger, that's actually all I knew of Dungeons & Dragons. But from 5e, I have uh, played through and run Curse of Strahd, Icewind Dale... I've played through a little bit of uh, Horde of the Dragon Queen, uh, Rat- Rage of Tiamat, or whatever the name for that one is. Yeah, the Rise of Tiamat? Rise of Tiamat, that's it. So I am pretty familiar, I'd say, with how they like to structure modules in uh, 5e.
0: This is very good. I do have to, I do have to ask, though when the day that you realized modules were a thing, what was your reaction? Was it like, <laughs> some, someone else writes D&D stuff too? I was like, are, are you kidding me? I don't
2: have to go around and think of every single thing uh, that you do. Cause the first module I actually played was Storm King's Thunder. One of our friends hosts an ongoing uh, Storm King's Thunder game that we've been playing for three years at this point. And I was like, wait, you're not gonna like make this up all on, on your own. That's, that's crazy. And then I started reading through a bunch of them and I'm like, wow, Wizards of the Coast like really knows their stuff, like really does what they
1: they need to to make them fun.
0: That's one thing I just got to say right there. Three years for Storm King's Thunder. I actually didn't know a module could run for three years. <laughs> Makes me
1: nervous for Out of the Abyss.
0: Are we going to be stuck in the Abyss for three years? Unfortunately, I, th- I think uh,
2: the average playthrough is stuck in the Abyss forever. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs>
0: so the yeah. sunlight is just a different campaign that exists in some other world. There's no, there's no world outside of the Abyss itself.
1: I'm going to admit... On mic, so so Seth, I'm sorry. Whenever you listen to this, that when I was looking through, I found like a master list about a bunch of like modules, and there was one for out of the abyss, and I looked respectfully, just like a little overview, and it does say, uh, "Eventually, we will get out of the abyss." Eventually. Uh
0: uh-uh. that's a that's a promise or a threat, Aaron. It's a threat. <laughs> it's a threat. it's a th- okay. uh, at this point, it's a threat <laughs> that I will get out of the abyss. But Mm -hmm. I think that's an interesting point that we're bringing up with the idea that a module could last for three years. I think one of the plus sides to modules is definitely prep time and the longevity of the prep that you do because when you're homebrewing a campaign and something goes like very awry or even you get past the point that you did, you're like, oh my God, I have to write so much more. (laughs) Where's the world after this point? So I think modules are definitely a big helpfulness too. No, don't worry. We got got so much of this story written out already.
2: Yeah, I would tend to agree with you uh, there, Josh. I did a brief foray into running a homebrew campaign. I was actually... Trying to run a homebrew Avatar: The Last Airbender campaign, where my players were playing as uh, soldiers in the in the Fire Nation right after the attack on the Air Nomads, and all of the morally gray choices that would come with that. But you're right; if your players go off track, it is it just becomes quite hard, at least in my opinion, to really get back up to that level that the modules you know have you at from the start. Not to say that you know it can't be done. Just, it takes uh, a special kind of person uh, to be able to do that world building and, you know, really set all that up for the players when the module does it for you.
0: It's, oh, it's so true. Aaron Aaron knows better than anybody. I, as a DM, I delve mostly into homebrew content, so. And it's awesome. I find myself planning like four or five different ways things could happen constantly because I'm like, I at least need to give myself an edge before I have to write the next thing.
1: Which we appreciate. as As players, I like it a lot. It's very tailored to whatever we choose to do, but I know it's so much overhead.
0: That's a fair point towards homebrew as well, and I don't. I I speak from. I've played a, a handful of modules. I DM'd one. I actually have my original Lost Minds of uh, Fandelver book right here. The first module that I ever DM'd like five years ago now. So. It's sitting next to me, but I find that when you talk about, like, a character's backstory, I personally find it hard to incorporate that into how the module's written because the story's already there. You're just characters that are placed within the storybook. It's not like when I homebrew, I ask for my character's input and then build the world around that character's story. So, Aaron, if you have a evil warlord that's your villain, they're most likely one of the main villains within the world of this campaign.
1: Which is cool. It's very fulfilling to do it that way. Although I will say um, one of the nice things about whenever we were prepping for Eli to run um, Icewind Dale for us was that he was like, basically you all need to find a reason to be heading to Icewind Dale and like leaving southern Faerun. So it's cool in the sense that like it makes all of the characters invested in each other much faster than before when you just like all meet in the tavern and everybody has their own agenda (laughs) and their own backstory. You know, it sort of like does the the intro work for you already.
0: Interesting. You know, Eli, if we could quiz you right now or ask you a quizzical question, as a DM that does a lot of modules, when a character gives you their backstory, how much do you try to put on them to incorporate it in Icewind Dale or how much do you mess around the module? It doesn't have to be specifically Icewind Dale because that's kind of a spoiler for us right now. But whatever (laughs) module module it is. What do you do to try to weave that character's backstory within the module?
2: So maybe this sounds a little counterintuitive, but I like the best way to do this is to not make the player characters the, you know, hero initially in the story. When you're like starting out level one, you're not going to be a famous, well-known adventurer. And my favorite module, Curse of Strahd, you're not even really like the main character in the story. So I think it's easier to explore different things that would fit the narrative that the player wants to craft for their character when you know a lot about their backstory. So it doesn't have to be some like long reveal in the making. But if I know, you know, my player wants their character to have um, this goal. I will always be looking for things in the source material to try and weave it in, like maybe I replace a minor NPC that we find out actually the character is supposed to do this or the character is actually related to this person, just to try and weave them in as the module goes on to be more and more important in the area or realm where they are.
0: That sounds very cool. Aaron knows that I constantly go off about this. In the DM's guide, level one to five is just heroes of the town. It's not you. Don't throw a level one character into. Here's a god. They're evil. <laughs> Go do something about that. Mm-hmm. Or um, I was in a one shot
1: with someone for their first time, right? And their name they were like a giant slayer, and I just kept thinking like, we're all level one, right? We're all missing half of our attacks. <laughs> There's a certain degree of cognitive dissonance that's like, are you a giant slayer really? I'm like, what what happened there? Granted. He rolled really well the whole night, so, like, <laughs> it's fine. He Maybe he actually giant. was a giant slayer then. Yeah, room. exactly.
0: I'm going to bash the folk hero background for a second here, so everyone follow Go me off. on this. The fact isn't one of the, like, things in the folk hero background that you slayed, like, this giant that invaded the town.
1: It's something like that. Like, you <laughs> I defended don't... your town from a monster.
0: It's not single-handed. There's no way. It's totally a Mercutio... Romeo situation where Mercutio and Tybalt were distracted, so Romeo was able to kill them. Like that's sure. that's all it is. It's not. There's there's got to be something deeper there. You're not killing it's, a giant at level one. It's extreme
1: coincidence and luck,
0: or it's just a really tall guy in the town that they call the giant. <laughs> you know that
2: actually just gave me a really interesting idea. There, Josh, you could play as a folk hero who knows he's not you know worthy of uh, the praise that he gets for quote quote single-handedly slaying the monster. And that makes the character have to live with these
1: inadequacy issues, even though. <laughs> I love that. I was helping one of my friends build a character, and he was thinking about being a con man, but using the folk hero background, and that, like, he's got this, like, legacy about him where, like, everybody believes he's done all these amazing things, but he's really just a charlatan, and so that way you can, like, still have all the perks of being a folk hero, right, while well, actually not being one. <laughs> just like the the
2: Harry Potter character, what is, uh,
0: Lockhart, Gilderoy yeah, Lockhart. Yeah, Gilderoy Lockhart, that. <laughs> oh! I would love to play a Gilderoy Lockhart character.
1: (laughs) Just a terrible wizard.
0: Problem for the DM, though, uh, the amnesia plotline is never fun, because it's like, I don't want to make backstory, so you make all backstory for me. (laughs) I actually think that that's kind of
1: cool in, like, the early days of Critical Role, right, in the second season. Mollymock, like, it's not clear to to Taliesin at the time what his backstory is. I am currently not up to date with Critical Role, so, like, Don't at me with, you know, more Molly Mock things because I just don't wanna know.
0: They're gonna sign you up for one of those email chains that spoiled Game of Thrones back in the day, except it's critical role.
1: So but I sort of like that idea of like, I don't know what, who I am or like wh- any of the things I've done. And to just kind of have your backstory happen to you as you go through the game seems really interesting.
0: I don't mean to bash on the amnesia plot line. I think it can be done well. I I just find it's one of those things that people could fall into and it's not done well the majority of the time. But I think <laughs> what Matthew Mercer and Taliesin Jaffe did with it was very good.
1: No surprises. which is a seamless transition. When we're talking about world building versus having something built for you, I feel like we have to talk about the Matt Mercer effect. And that like, you know, is there some onus now on DMs to have like everything already figured out? And is that maybe, do you think that might be a contributing factor to turn more towards modules instead of saying, hey, you can do some things yourself, but it doesn't have to be this much.
0: If you're a DM that does homebrewing like myself, I find that if you try to plan out the entire universe, you're going to hurt yourself because inevitably without any guidelines unless you know your players very well which i like to say i do but still surprises happen you can't plan out an entire world because it's most likely not going to happen you could be like here's five countries on my map and here's every single part of the map but three of the five countries may never be visited it's it's a waste of paper that you sadly never got to use so i think planning out the world to Good extent is important. It's going to hurt. It's going to take time. But don't worry about, like, okay, so in this small town within this country, there's going to be five different places you could go. The blacksmith, who's blah, 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 this, 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 this. Aaron knows better than anyone. I name every single character in my world, and that might be a crutch. (laughs) <laughs> as a DM, because I constantly have to be like, oh my god, what was the voice for this blacksmith they met and what was his plot line again? I was I was just going to echo that.
2: You can just start, you know, with a single town with a single quest line and encounter with a few named NPCs and a name for your country. You don't even have to think of some like overarching conflict that's afflicting this country yet, unless you want to. You can just start off with the uh, implication that this quest is what you guys are gonna do, and if you like it, then you'll continue expanding that world. I also have another interesting thought. I think for for starting homebrew, if it feels overwhelming, I've run Curse of Strahd three times, and the first time I ran it, I ran it, um, you know, as as intended in the book. The other two times I ran it, I ran it with uh, different characters I've added in, with a different, um, with, with with a different setting. It wasn't you know the normal gothic horror setting, I've done a naval setting, and I've done a, a western setting for it. Oh. So I think you can oh. incorporate homebrew into modules, if you'd like, by changing characters, motivations, settings, things like that to give them different theme to match what you
1: like to play. Definitely. And I I played in one such, um, like a one-off in the Curse of Strahd world. And thanks for not killing me, Eli. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and you would openly be like this encounter is written to be way too hard, so I did less. And I appreciate that.
2: I mean, no one is going to have fun in D&D if you kill off the entire party in a level 2 dungeon before you've even really entered the game. So mm-hmm. like some things I think Wizards of the Coast expects players to play 100% optimally, know all the rules of the game, uh, and be able to think, you know, critically about situations. Like uh, I don't want to give any spoilers, but the dungeon I'm talking about is Death House, and there are lots of encounters there for if a party doesn't exactly know what they're doing or doesn't have an optimal setup, they will just die. So I change things like that. I want my players to have fun when they're doing things.
0: You know, Eli, you're you're teasing into a question I was going to ask you as well that I find with modules and verse homebrew you could change and shift the campaign tone more in a homebrew because the world is completely open but say for example i always found when you're stuck in strahd you have that tone of dark and dismal the entire time because you're stuck in this plane that's not very fun i will say but it's really cool to hear that you created a naval version of that or so-and-so to at least add more life into something that I don't know, maybe after 15 levels, you're kind of like, we're still in this dark, depressing place. Oh, how I feel about the Underdark.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna say, you know, you can you can turn Curse of Strahd or any other horror modules into, you know, a musical full of happiness or anything like that, but I think you can change the tone of adventures to, you know, similar genres. Like, I think you could probably play through Curse of Strahd as a mystery uh, and that's sort of how i ran it when i uh did it in the western setting there's this you know mysterious lord uh who you know isn't openly a vampire fun fact my players didn't even know they were playing curse of strahd when we were playing that one what
1: cool yeah
2: yeah they thought they were just in a a western uh, that they that we were playing until they found a le- letter that said uh, Baron Strahd von Zarovich and this was after they were already like level eight
0: so they were like are you kidding me I love that that's that's really fun that you're able to. Take a module and make it just so different that it breeds new life. To and I assume all your players were familiar with Strad before, correct? Yeah, that I played it like
2: this because uh, one of the players in this group ha- has a a small habit of power gaming. If he knows the the module, <laughs> so I wanted to try and surprise them as best I could.
0: You take the keys away from him and you say, "Not today, <laughs> no." <laughs> So another thing that I have in my little, uh, talking point here, starting off, if you are a brand new DM or just someone brand new to the Dungeons and Dragons universe in general, I find that taking a module is probably the best way to introduce you into the DMing of this universe.
2: I think it's a good start, but I wouldn't necessarily start off with a full module with the intention of, uh going start to finish as a first time DM. That's a little bit in- intimidating to you know see this thick book in front of you and try and weave together all the connections that they have in it uh, from from start to finish. Uh, if you wanted to go you know with a module, there are lots of not necessarily Wizard of the coast written ones or played as one session, two sessions, uh, three sessions, which I think work very well for a beginner. And alternatively, if you have a good idea in your head that you think you can uh, flesh out quite well, then then you should you should go for that. The first time I ever uh, DM'd Five E was a was a homebrew uh, uh, homebrew heist mystery where I had all of the different players have competing goals against each other without them knowing.
0: Eli, you're a genius. I'm just gonna say it right here for the world. <laughs> <laughs>
1: There's a reason. there's a reason he made it to the podcast. And I agree. I think even just reading through some of the modules, even if it means you don't play it, just to see like the way that they talk about, here's like the flavor text that you would read to your players and here's how this encounter is set up and it like, even if you don't follow it word for word, it gives you a lot of like the language and the tools to be,
0: then be able to make your own. Lost Minds of Fandelver, as a Wizard of the Coast D&D book if anyone needed a short Ooh. adventure to get into. But for any DM whatsoever, Aaron, you're so right. Coming up with the words to set the scene and making them fresh each time is only improved by the more modules and books that you get to read. Mm -hmm. Because I find myself getting into the trap of describing things very similarly because that's the style that I've just inherited.
1: You have to keep your your repertoire ever changing.
0: Exactly, so go into that DM's guide and look at all the adjectives you could use. Uh, uh, Pack up your adjectives as they say in Schoolhouse Rock. Wow. You really did that to me just now. We did it. We got Schoolhouse Rock on the Dungeons & Gatherers podcast. Today is a good day.
2: <laughs> is this where you like put in the, the theme of Schoolhouse Rock into the podcast for the oh, listeners? Oh, definitely. I don't think <laughs> I'm going
1: to do that, but just imagine. Imagine if you will.
0: Yeah, pretend it's there. I'm going to give one second of silence. Just pretend it was inserted. Okay, there's where it went. That
1: sounds awesome. I love that song.
0: The other thing I was going to bring up, I find that I sometimes tend to go towards homebrew, and there's a lot of people that do that as well, because it's like, I got to spend money for this adventure, and if you know D&D well enough, you could just be like, I'm going to write my own adventure then.
1: That's fair, too. I also, my love in um, D&D adventure stuff is I love the source books more than I like the modules because mm. I, I also tend towards like the, I would love to make it myself and make it super personalized. So stuff like, and no surprise because this is a Magic the Gathering D&D crossover podcast. Things like the Guildmaster's Guide, um, the Mythic Odysseys of Theros, All of, like, those sorts of things that just give you more information about what running an adventure in a specific place might be like.
0: I'm happy to, whenever we do this podcast, to have my eyes opened a little bit. I think, Eli, you did also bring up a really good point how even with modules, you can warp them and change them so the flavor of players and your own DM flair gets to get inserted within this. The, the perfect happy marriage between homebrew mechanics and the modules that were written themselves.
2: Yeah, I think, I think every DM who's going to do a module is going to do that uh, some, somewhat. Otherwise you're kind of just like
1: reading through a you know, pick-your-own-adventure. So, Eli, I have a question for you then. The subject is railroading which I think is something that happens a lot um, in D&D in general. But I know with a module, like like it has to be guided in a way that you will make it to the end of the book, right? And so how right. do you make that interesting and still like still keep some player agency without having it feel like, well, the book is telling me that now we have to do this?
2: Well, I, I will admit I'm sometimes not the, not the best at this. I think one solution is to uh, give the players an illusion of choice where, uh, you know, you give them option A, B, C, but really all options lead to A. Otherwise, you know, some modules it's going to be unavoidable. I know Rise of Tiamat uh, and that whole trilogy is quite famous for being railroady. Aside from that, I think if you don't want to go the simplified uh, illusion of choice route, you have to give them options. Like when you're in a, a quest node location, make sure you have... Different NPCs interact with them. Uh, you know they're walking from point A to point B. They see uh, a quest giver, uh, and so that they'll start to accumulate options. So when they finish the quest they're on, they can make their own decision on which of those you think is um, it. They think is the most prescient. Also, there's a really good way uh, to prep for this too. It has a name, uh, someone on Reddit came up with it, but I I forget, so I apologize, I'm not giving them credit. But before you go and uh, go to a quest node location, you kind of have like a list of uh, characters that they could encounter in that area and what things that character knows or can, can give them. And then you have a list of events that can occur and the triggers for them. So, instead of having to know every single, you know, thing that could go on in this place, you kind of have the overview, and if need be, you can, they, they find a character, or you get into a position where you can explain something to them. You can have, you know, your source material with you, uh, so you can give them as much detail as they want.
0: If I could ask, I guess this is to Aaron as well, we, in our first podcast, we're talking about the natural 20, right, and we were talking mm-hmm. about the age-old question of seducing the dragon in these tiamat books is there a way and i'm not saying seducing i'm sorry everyone out there you don't have to seduce the dragon if you don't want him but are there other options in the end for players if they don't want to fight the dragon
2: in rise of tiamat i believe unless you know the dm writes something uh i believe not really It's been a long time since I have leafed through that, and I have never played all the way to the end of Rise of Tiamat because, frankly, it got boring. Hmm. Uh, But I believe, no, not really, unless the DM wants to change things.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking, what happens if you have, like... Let's let's just pretend for a second that we're in Out of the Abyss, right? Because that's all near and dear to our hearts. Let's pretend that we get to a point, you know, this is purely hypothetical, but where some of us might decide not to leave the Abyss, you know, where... Or where people might decide, like, oh, this town seems fine. You know, like, I play a druid. I don't know what's going to happen in Neverlight Grove. But what if Kiva super vibes with it and is like, nah, I'm good. I'm going to stay in Neverlight Grove. Like, are there ever moments when the party might just decide to settle down and, like, you don't want to stop playing those characters. But you, you know, have you ever had a party that exits the realm of the module and then, like, start something else i've never had
2: a uh, party that does that of their own volition the only thing that has caused the party to want to keep playing but not be able to has been a, uh, a tpk
1: unfortunately oh no <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: womp, womp, womp.
1: that's depressing that might happen to us soon
2: y- you made me think of something uh Aaron, we, we always think
1: that like railroading in D D is a completely
2: negative thing like oh god we're getting railroaded again no one wants to be playing this but i don't think that always has to be the case i feel like sometimes your players should feel railroaded like there is something happening right now and if you don't do it there will be real life consequences it doesn't always you know feel like bad things don't always feel pressing because you know we're playing characters this isn't happening in real life So I think sometimes if the players feel railroaded, it's a sign that you have built tension correctly. They feel like they have to do this because otherwise bad things are going to happen.
1: Sometimes what players crave is direction, right? There's nothing worse than, like, you walk into a place, right, and the DM just goes, what would you like to do? And, like, nobody, everybody just looks at each other and they're like, I don't really know what I'm doing here or what I need to be doing or where I'm going from here right it's like that classic like you finish a quest and if you don't have something to tie you on to the next bit you kind of just like sit there in like a liminal space for a minute and that can be sort of that can be killer in a game i think quite
2: literally i think the uh lack of direction is what leads to murder hoboing with uh with Mm. you know new players they don't have any direction so they're like all right i'm gonna create some direction by doing something dumb and oh look there's a shopkeeper let me kill them
0: exactly it should never come to the point where the dm has to step into the world and be like oh adventuring party hello quest over here this is where you should go bye With the exclamation
1: point above their head
0: yeah exactly uh, it it could be you could give hints throughout the original quest that you do to lead them to a point but it shouldn't be like dead stop Oh, there's the quest marker. It's like the game is reloading something. I wish that
1: um, Seth was a little bit more heavy-handed. That way we wouldn't make so many stupid decisions.
0: <laughs> Seth, you're playing with idiots. Fix that.
1: Yeah, honestly. Like, play to your audience. <laughs>
2: I've, I've had conversations with uh, Seth about this. Seth is more old-style, and he feels that whatever the players decide should get no sort of, you know, hand-holding whatsoever. He actually said, like... Uh, to me once if the module as written is uh is very tough then you shouldn't like nerf that encounter because you know your players might get tpk'd if they get tpk'd oh well they won't
1: next time oh i see that is a very three five kind of way to go about it is the tomb of horrors is that the unbeatable dungeon that's like got all the shit in it that will just, like, traps that will just kill your party entirely. Yeah, and
2: it has, like, an adult red dragon at the end or something. Yeah, I uh. some like it. <laughs>
1: uh. <laughs> or whichever one, like, if you take a wrong turn you stumble upon an adult black dragon and it's just, like... You're supposed to fight it at level two.
0: So many dragons. (laughs) What's up with this? There shouldn't be this many dragons in a place. They want to keep to themselves. I think things like that, you
2: know, used to be like a challenge. That's what like early D&D players wanted. Maybe the role-playing was secondary to I don't have video games, so I want to go and whack
0: a dragon and think about it in my head. Right,
1: want to simulate that combat and get really gritty into the numbers.
0: I also give modules a hand because personally, as me as a DM, I usually underplay my combats like I'm like it's challenging but I don't want to kill my players so I got to make sure it's not too challenging but then in the end it turns out like these big bosses aren't the most terribly challenging thing so I appreciate that d d builds these encounters that are like no bad death yeah we've had
1: some fights in out of the abyss where I'm like shit man and like in between weeks I'll be thinking about I'll be like, all right, I have one wild shape left and two first level spells. I'm like, what can I do? Like, how can I live? How can I keep my party from dying? It's a good idea to be able to like
2: set the tone of the campaign because sometimes players can go into it like all, all cocky. I can do anything. Uh, in, my, in my game, first game of Curse of Strahd, I think one of my party members shot a crossbow bolt at Strahd the first time they ever met him. So, I had to prove to them that Strahd is a ninth level caster who could wipe the floor with them at most <laughs> points in the game.
1: That's fair. Josh had to do that to me
0: um, in the first game we ever played together. I too. did. I did indeed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I agree with that. I think it's important that Adia builds characters into a campaign that are like, listen, this guy is very powerful. Don't mess with them because something will happen. You're not, you're level three, right. you're not the talk of the town yet.
1: Don't assume just because you're encountering this person at at whatever level you are now that you were meant to, like, you know, be able to stand up to them.
0: That's why I'm happy in Out of the Abyss. Seth played into Traben's ego where I was like, I was the one who smashed the tomb, come at me. And then all of them just barraged me at the same time. I'm like, this feels right. Way to go. (laughs) It hurt. It hurt a lot. I did deserve this. You know, Aaron, we're talking about Out of the Abyss. And we're talking about Strahd a lot The theme of the day is
1: melee So let's put two bad bitches against each other And I want to know um, Let's hear your, your reasonings behind Would you rather try and escape The Underdark or Strahd's Demiplane Well are we talking you know Book as written or um, or, or, or you or know, fun western version <laughs> Let's go Let's go book as written
2: because book as written, I, I'm pretty sure it, like, again, I, a spoiler warning. Okay, because the ending of uh, uh, Curse of Strahd has something in it that essentially says, like, the players might be able to escape, but Strahd always comes back and uh, reasserts his, his domain over the de- demiplane again because he has, like, a god backing him. So I feel, like, I feel like you can't really escape. So I would, I would much rather try and escape the Underdark because you just have to dig up, right? You, you,
1: at the end of the day, you just have to dig up. Oh, wow. Now I'm going to debate myself. Okay. If Ooh, I had powers,
0: yeah. I would say Out of the Abyss because I feel as though I could enjoy at least some of the towns with Out of the Abyss. As a Josh Karam being inserted into the world, I think Strahd... Because at least I can live a dismal life and nobody's trying to put me in prison constantly.
1: Well, that's true. There's less of a chance of being
0: enslaved. Um... If I keep my head down and, like, dig my ditches, I'll be fine. No one's gonna come after me.
2: (laughs) I feel like the average person's life, though, is probably better in Out of the Abyss because there's, like, towns and industry and stuff like that. Whereas in Curse of Strahd, you know, Barovia has no industry except for a wine uh, grower, a vinter. Uh, It talks about, like, the people uh, essentially just sit around uh, getting high all day.
0: Uh, I guess if you drown it out enough, maybe it is better to be in Strahd, though. Just going to say, if you distract yourself from the pain and existence of living in Strahd's domain. So I've admittedly never played
1: Strahd, right? So let's start there. Spoiler! And I don't know anything about it, yeah. (laughs) So, my question is, is there no way to leave the plane of Barovia? Like, can you not just, like, peace out?
2: So, the way it works, again, sorry for mild spoilers, Aaron, I know you haven't uh, played
1: this. It's right? I don't think I'll ever get there.
2: Strahd, essentially, his demiplane is surrounded by uh, these uh, fog walls, these walls of mist, uh, and... Mm. Uh, you end up like on the barriers so when i had you guys on the ship you know coming yeah. in to uh, go to death house for that dungeon mm-hmm. you guys got past the gate and you were trapped there the only people that can uh enter and leave barovia are the Vistani because strad lets them oh. and the the hope is that you know if you kill strad or end his domain over uh you know barovia uh-huh then you'll be able to leave, and
1: the question is whether or not that's actually true. Oh, or if it's all just like a clever illusion. That's right, yeah. Just to think that you could you could do the whole game, and you could still not
0: achieve your goal.
1: That's the, That's what fucks
0: me up about this. They're setting it, though, they do set it in the horror tone, then, because at the end of a horror movie, it's not yes. like, yay, they escaped oh but this it's is still like there. at the end
1: of krampus this is a weird mix where like it pans out right and it turns out they're just in like a snow globe in krampus's dungeon or whatever
0: yeah
2: that's right that's right i think i think that's because you know out of the abyss is i would call it probably a thriller it has you know scary moments all the time and it's like kind of dark and depressing because you're constantly on the run from these drow that want to like take you back into slavery but uh, Curse of Strahd, at least as written, is good old-fashioned despair, Gothic horror, evil. It is, it is downright depressing. There is dark, twisted stuff in it. It's a. Uh, I, I think it's that that that's what set, sets it apart there.
1: Right. Yeah. Out of the Abyss is more like um like Alien in that way. It's like a monster movie, as opposed to like the Curse of Strahd's like a deep psychological sort of horror thing
2: and out of the abyss we might end up becoming the monsters our party
0: that's not a bad ending for my character so don't, <laughs> don't, don't be putting that in a negative light <laughs> well hey i think there were some good points made on both sides for out of the abyss and strahd there honestly i just feel anxious whenever i talk about strahd so it's already doing <laughs> I, something to me it
1: makes me so nervous
0: I I just get the jitters. Just hearing about it,
1: I'm like, (gasps) my breath is, like, tight. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, on the whole, I'm going to say one of the reviews I read about Out of the Abyss when I was looking respectfully said that um, it's a great source book also if you just want to run an adventure in the Underdark because the Underdark's not something we really get a lot of detail about, but Out of the Abyss, so much of it is in the Underdark. So whether or not you use all of the adventure for what it is or you do bits and pieces I can imagine a homebrew campaign that takes a journey underground somehow ends up in one of these places and gets wrapped up in a section of out of the abyss right and I think that's a really cool sort of way to mix and match I agree about Eli you have a great point about railroading that sometimes like people need direction it's just about whether or not they need this much direction or just, you know, like this, the scaffolding of it.
2: I think the best, the best way to figure that out is, you know, have a candid conversation with your players. Like, if you feel like you're railroading 24-7, you can talk to your players be like, do you guys enjoy how I'm doing this? Would you rather
1: more freedom or less? We didn't even have to pay you to say that.
0: I was about to say, welcome to every Dungeon Gatherer's podcast here when we talk about D&D. Talk to your DM, talk to your players. Just talk to them, man. They're people. They're actually your friends also.
1: That's the funny part. It's true. It's like people forget that you're playing this game with your friends.
0: I – people are going to – well, first off, I just want to say like modules are exciting, of course, no matter what opinions I've said because I'm so excited for Candlekeep that's coming out soon. And I'm excited to break into the Candlekeep mysteries there. But, hey, if you're like a new person – looking to play D&D and DMing for the first time, as scary as it may be. Get a basic, like, one-shot or lost minds of Fandelver, and not only just read from it, but also, like, ask your players what is their backstory, and maybe, like, switch up some names in the book. Maybe change the name of a town. Maybe build your own town that you put in there that's just, like, a village. A village is smaller than a town. Just, like, a couple little vendors you want to add. Add your own flair on something that was written, just to get you reduce the anxiousness of creating a whole world right from the beginning. And I
2: think the, the benefit of Lost Minds is it's free, I think, right? You can get that the uh, a PDF of the module online for free.
0: I believe the PDF is free, yes. I initially bought this in a starter set years ago, mm-hmm. but yes, I'm pretty sure the Lost Minds PDF itself is free. So
1: yeah. Well, amazing. Thank you all for listening. Uh, we'll be back next Tuesday, but in the meantime, be sure to follow our Twitter at d Gatherers, and tweet about the show using hashtag Dungeons and Gatherers. And where can we find all of us? Well, you could find me on Instagram, at karamjosh. Josh. Uh, my Instagram is at Apricot underscore Aaron. And Eli, what about you? You can find uh,
2: my Instagram
0: at Elias, E-L-I-A-S underscore Lyle, L-I-S-L-E. And Elias, you do something very uh, fantasy-based on your Instagram, is that correct? I do, yeah. I,
2: I post a lot of stories of uh, miniature painting. Uh, it's my, my favorite quarantine hobby, and I, I paint a lot of uh, miniatures for d d and Warhammer 40K.
0: So if you guys want to see that cool stuff, go and check that out. Because I'm not going to lie, I, I constantly am liking them posts because I'm like, Oh my god, that mm-hmm. orc looks so cool. Or even when you did an orc in one of our campaigns, I'm like, That's the orc. That's Zipkin. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Zipkin the gnome. If, if Zipkin is hearing this, yeah, he's an orc wow. that knows he's a gnome. He is a gnome. He's just a very tall, great gnome. Oh, but guys, it looks like the timer's counting down. And that is game. The winner is The audience. Like and subscribe to the Dungeons & Gatherers podcast.